I want them to hold the agency accountable, right? And it's not because I need anything out of it. I don't get a payout. I don't get money from this. It's just they need to be held accountable for this behavior so that they can't do it again. So whatever the OSC needs to do to make that take place, I'm fine with it, as long as there's an understanding that they did the wrong thing and they can't do it again. That was today's guest, scientist Joel Clement. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Have you wondered how federal scientists are holding up in the Trump administration? You'll find out in this episode of Got Science. And Shreya Dervasala has another example of sidelining science for us after the interview. Trying to stay current with the latest abuses of science by this administration is like playing whack-a-mole. And the moles are on Adderall. And our arms are tied behind our backs. We manage to whack them away, but then another pops up. And another. And in the struggle to whack all these moles, I know I occasionally overlook one of the worst abuses of science by the Trump administration, and that is the treatment of scientists. The thousands of government scientists working for the EPA, NASA, NOAA, and others joined public service because they believed in the power of science to make a difference in people's lives. Under an administration that suppresses scientific evidence over and over again to create policies that hurt people, many of them are suffering too. They're worried they'll be fired if they speak out against science being sidelined. They're worried if they do get fired, someone with less commitment to evidence will take their place, or maybe worse, that no one at all will be appointed to do their crucial work. They're watching as their own work is ignored, censored, and twisted to suit an agenda. It's been tough. At UCS, we recently welcomed a new senior fellow to our Center for Science and Democracy, someone who can speak to how difficult it is to be a federal scientist in an administration that devalues and silences scientists. Joel Clement was reassigned last year from his position at the Department of the Interior to a job completely unrelated to his skills or background. Believing his reassignment was politically motivated, he blew the whistle on the Department of Interior and Secretary Ryan Zinke. Joel joins me on the podcast to chat about his work at the DOI, the populations he used to serve, who's doing that work now, the obligation for certain folks to use their voice when they can, and what happens when whistleblowers blow the whistle. Spoiler, there's no actual whistle. Before we get into it, A quick note on the language that Joel uses. Joel refers consistently to the indigenous Alaskans he used to serve at DOI as Alaska Natives. When he's speaking about his former colleagues at DOI who were Native or Indigenous Americans, he refers to them as American Indians, which is a name that many Indigenous Americans use to describe themselves. If you're not an Indigenous American, and you're wondering how to refer to Indigenous Americans in your life, it's a good idea to just ask what they prefer. Joel, welcome to the Got Science podcast. Oh, thanks, Colleen. I'm happy to be here. So you're a scientist, and you were previously a climate advisor and director of the Office of Policy Analysis at the Department of Interior. You worked with Alaska Natives living on land that's rapidly disappearing due to climate change until you were reassigned to the Office of Natural Resources Revenue. 
where your job was to audit fossil fuel royalty income. So do you have a background in accounting? No, I don't. I don't even balance my checkbook. But, you know. <laughs> so what happened? So last July uh, 2017, dozens of senior executives at the Department of the Interior were reassigned in one night, which is unprecedented. Every new administration, when they come in, they move a few senior executives around, but no agency in any administration had ever taken such a swing at the career senior executive service at, at any agency. So my sense of the situation is that when they reassigned dozens of us senior executives that night, that many of us were targeted uh, and retaliated against, and it was hoped that we would quit the agency and leave civil service entirely. And so they moved me into an office and a role that not only didn't suit my background, but was in opposition to my work as a climate policy advisor. Yes, yeah, somewhat ironic. Uh, choice yes. of, of new position. Not nuanced. In fact, their original proposal, which we have found out after the fact, was to send me to Tulsa, Oklahoma to do that. So they wanted to relocate me and move me into the royalties collection business. So as part of the senior executive service, th this is a, a mobile service. So it's within their right to reassign you. You, are, you actually expect that you might be reassigned quickly, but you would be reassigned to a job within your area of expertise. So it's hard to come up with any reason for the transfer other than they really wanted you to leave. That's right. And then the senior executives, all of us, we know that we could be moved even involuntarily. Uh, there are general procedures for doing that, which they ignored. Uh, they didn't explain their reasons for our reassignments and why we were really relocated to these offices. They didn't leave any paper trail. Uh, but yeah, this was a, an unprecedented action. You decided then to, to speak out about this because it seemed very politically motivated. Is that when you decided to sort of blow the whistle? Well, you know, frankly, I didn't know what to do. Uh, you know, I, I, most civil servants, whether they're scientists or others, don't know what it means to be a whistleblower, don't know what the rules are, and don't know about their protections, particularly under the Whistleblower Protection Act and the Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act. I, I had no idea what these things were. Uh, so I didn't know that I was going to blow the whistle. I just knew that I wanted, <clears throat> excuse me, I wanted the world to know about these abuses of this administration, that you can't just do this sort of thing and not have a light shined on it. That's all I wanted to do. What do you actually do? Do you, you file something? I had no idea actually what a whistleblower was, frankly. Um, so I did have the sense to find an employment attorney, uh, an employment attorney who understood uh, the federal service and, and the federal constraints and so on, and the Whistleblower Protection and Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Acts. Uh, so I sat down with the attorneys and came to understand that when you're retaliated against, you, you can take actions, especially if there's an effect on American health and safety, as we're seeing up in Alaska for these Arctic uh, villages. So you then file your paperwork with the Office of Special Counsel, in this case, uh, and they begin an investigation. Uh, it can take a long, long time. It's already taken, you know, 10 months, but I want them to do a good job, so I don't mind that. And, uh, and I think that they will take a very close look at the problem. So when you went to the budget office, they had no role for you. They didn't have a job description. That's right. I was just called a senior advisor uh, to the program there. With really nothing to advise on. And that's right. And over time, they realized, boy, we better give him something. And, 
and uh, the political leadership at Interior insisted that the leadership in this office come up with something for me and start training me in the auditing uh, programs and auditing procedures of collecting and dispersing royalty income. So they realized that they had made a mistake, that there was a fake position that they had moved me into. It was a little too obvious. So let's put some work in front of this guy. So how are your math skills? <laughs> I'm not bad. You know, I'm a, I'm a biologist. I've got the math skills of a biologist. <laughs> so you then resigned. Um, why not stay and try to fight from the inside? So two reasons. Uh, first of all, this office that I was moved into, they're a fantastic bunch of hardworking civil servants, and they are focused on making sure these royalty revenues go to the right places, like tribes, for example. Some tribes, it's their only source of income. So they do play an important role. I know nothing about that. I know nothing about auditing. I, I was clearly a square peg in a round hole, and it wasn't going to enhance their operation to have to bend over backwards and train me and so on. So I'd, I didn't want to string them along on this. And also, I'd already essentially lost my job. All I wanted to keep at this point was my voice. And uh, within this job, I was being tamped down. Uh, you know, from within Interior, I had very little voice left. And it was clear the agency and Zinke, Secretary Zinke, were not going to do anything on climate change and they weren't going to act to protect the Alaska Natives uh, threatened by uh, the impacts of climate change. So if I wanted to make a difference there, I had to go do it from outside the agency. Tell me more about the work that you were doing with the Alaska Natives. Yeah, so at Interior, uh, first of all, the Department of the Interior is the federal trustee for American Indians and Alaska Natives. So it plays a special role within the federal family in advocating for representing and supporting tribes and Alaska Natives. Uh, in the case of these Arctic villages up there, we'd get visitors from these villages every month or so coming to Washington to say, hey, we, we are extremely threatened. There's a GAO report, General Accounting Office report out there that says there are 31 villages that are highly vulnerable right now to the effects of climate change. And in the case of these coastal communities, it's not just sea level rise. Uh, they, they sit on islands and narrow spits of land that are essentially locked in place by permafrost. Well, that's no longer true, and they're getting very quickly eroded, and the sea ice is not coming in. Uh, when the fall storm season comes in, there's no sea ice to protect them. So they're now uh, being, the, the, the seas from these storms are devouring these spits of land meters at a time. So they come into Washington, they're like, we need help. And DOI plays an important role on that. The Bureau of Indian Affairs at DOI plays an important role there. But there was no coordinated action in Washington to address that, and what we started uh, over the over the years before I left was to develop a program to address this in a coordinated way among all the federal agencies that work in Alaska and there are quite a lot of them so my role was to coordinate as the senior executive senior career guy to coordinate all those agencies and their senior career leaders to make sure we're able to provide resources where possible and advance the ball and at least start to address the problem what would adaptation look like for a community in Alaska on a spit of land that's in grave danger of disappearing. Do you move a whole community? I mean, do you, what do you do? Yeah, that's one word, relocation. Uh, you know, you know I, I, I think some of the communities 
have wanted to stay and defend in place and that's their prerogative and it's actually their decision to make but many of them will have to relocate and there are so many questions of governance and land issues and of course money issues and relocating villages exactly cultural persistence can you move the whole community or do you move people individually and then they lose their community exactly and that's 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 failure there. So from our perspective, it was we need to find a way to serve the community, ensure cultural continuity, and relocate these villages, uh, all uh, a village as one unit so that they can continue their traditions. Each of these cult- each of these villages has their own practices and, and traditions, many of them their own dialects, some different languages. Uh, they really punch above their weight in terms of their contribution to global cultural diversity. So you really do want to act to maintain that, whether it's language, cultures, traditions, and so on. So relocating them as villages is very important. What are some other adaptation methods that don't require relocation? Yeah, you know, adaptation, particularly in the Arctic, is very complicated, right? Relocation is important for some villages, but for others, they may want to defend in place. And historically, that's what they have done. The Army Corps will come in and build some riprap or or provide an elevated area for a a security or an emergency shelter. Uh, They may build a a shelter uh, off the island somewhere where people can congregate in the event of an emergency. But frankly, Uh, Every adaptation plan, every emergency preparedness plan in the Arctic depends on air support. And there is no air support up there. I mean, it would take hours for support to come from Kodiak, Alaska, to get all the way up there to get people out of harm's way. And so that's why this is such a, a disaster in the making, and it's why lives are at risk. We'll be back in a moment with the second half of our interview. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. For more episodes, go to gotsciencepodcast.org. Are you a federal scientist with information about actions that threaten the role of science in policymaking? Do you need expert legal advice before you share this information? The UCS Science Protection Project can help. We'll connect you with experienced attorneys who can help you choose the best course of action. Find out more at ucsusa.org slash scienceprotection. And now let's get back to our interview. How much information do you get from individual tribal members? Do they come to Washington to talk to you, or is there a lot of communication with the people in the communities that are, that are being affected? So, so these community members would come to Washington directly. We'd have whaling captains come to Washington. We'd have local tribal leaders come to Washington. They would send letters. They made many appeals. Villages like Shishmaref, where uh, the youth uh, were some of the most outspoken of the community members, saying, hey, we know we need to move. Please help us. We don't want to find that we no longer have a home in 20 years. We want to establish that home that we know we'll have when we are the tribal elders. So we had very direct contact with folks. Uh, I did pay an occasional visit uh, up to the region, but for the most part, this organizing and support had to take place in Washington because without Washington behind it, there's not much you can do in the region to protect these folks and to relocate them. So what has happened to the work that you were doing now that you and others have been reassigned? 
Well, they haven't replaced me. They haven't filled my position. And right now, there is no one in Washington uh, coordinating the federal response to this slow-moving disaster. There's no one doing it. Now, that's within the Trump administration. Congress has stepped up in the absence of action from the executive branch to provide some funding for one of the villages to start to relocate. It's a very expensive proposition, but in the more recent, in the most recent uh, budget bill, there was money to go to the Denali Commission to help fund some transitions up there uh, because the executive branch was totally punting on the issue and ignoring them completely. So you, you just described this as a slow-moving um, problem, but before the interview, you were telling me about a USGS NOAA study that actually says that things are happening faster than we expected. Yeah, that's right. I, I say slow-moving disaster in contrast to what FEMA is required to respond to, which is an immediate event like a giant storm. So a study just came out, uh, a USGS and NOAA study. It was actually funded by the Department of Defense uh, that uh, found that many low-lying atolls in the Pacific will be uninhabitable by the middle of this century. Now, what, the, what this means is that these low-lying atolls who know that the sea level rise is gonna take a lot of their land, but they thought they had until the end of the century, all of a sudden, this new modeling ex explains that aquifer inundation and other things are gonna uh, eliminate potable water there within 30 or 40 years. So that's within the time frame where there's not much we can do uh, on the mitigation front. There's not much we can do in terms of cutting back on greenhouse gases that will change what happens with the climate over the next 20 or 30 years. So it has to be all about adaptation, building resilience, and finding ways to get through the eye of the needle for entire cultures. Just like the Alaska villages, these atoll communities have been there for hundreds, in some cases thousands of years, and they've developed their own practices, own traditions and languages and so on. They'd be wiped out. They'd have to go blend in somewhere in Fiji or something and, and really lose their cultural continuity. So there's another aspect to this story that you've been vocal about, and that's the blatant discrimination against American Indians and other minorities at the DOI. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, there have been several disturbing incidents. One of them, of course, was when they reassigned uh, all of us that night last summer uh, in July of 2017. A disproportionate number of us were American Indian. Uh, so. Uh, a third of those who were reassigned were American Indian, and half of them were minorities, and, and, a, and a disproportionate number were also women. But the focus on American Indians uh, was unusual. It was striking, and I know that there have been many follow-up uh, investigations to look into that because it's not an isolated incident. There have been other situations where this administration has targeted American Indians. And the DOI by design has, um, gives preference to indigenous peoples. That's right, That's right. Be because DOI is the federal trustee for American Indians and, and Alaska Natives, there's what's called a hiring preference for American Indians. In many jobs, there's a preference to hire American Indians into these positions to ensure that we have good representation uh, of American Indians and Alaska Natives on the career staff at DOI. So to be targeting them goes against, uh, not only is it discriminatory, but it goes against the, the mission and intent of, uh, of the Department of the Interior. So you did sue the department to see internal documents and memos about the mass reassignment 
and the Inspector General's office recently released its report, and it pretty much verified that the reassignments were of a political nature. Um, what do you want to see happen now? Well, you know, the, the, the problem with some with an investigation like that is they, they can find all this information out. And they can, it certainly affirms everything we've been saying, that, that it's quite likely that these reassignments were retaliatory. In some cases, there was discrimination. But they kept no paper trail at all. Uh, they were not able to explain why they reassigned us to the positions they did. So it's good to have that stuff out there. But really, uh, all they get in that case is a slap on the wrist and, hey, don't do it again. Right. Um, the problem now is what about all those senior executives that were reassigned, particularly what about all those American Indians who were reassigned without any good reason? What is there any way to uh, to make it right? Uh, so I would like to see further steps at the Interior Department to make that right. There's still an ongoing investigation. The Office of Special Counsel is still investigating my whistleblower complaint. And, and my hope is that we can just continue to shine light on this, because if they get away with this kind of thing, they're just going to keep doing it, right? I mean, these abuses are not, there's a, there's a pretty clear pattern, and we've seen this over and over, right? They're just kind of these ham-fisted punches at rules and regulations, and they try and stay just shy of breaking the law. But in many cases, they're winding up in court. And in this case, hopefully, uh, we'll see them taken to task on the issue. The problem is it takes time, it takes and we time. don't have a lot of time for some of these communities. Yeah, that's right. And they're doing some damage already. Uh, and, and not only is it communities on the edge uh, in Alaska or on the Pacific Islands, but elsewhere, Houston, Puerto Rico, you know, these extreme uh, weather events are very connected. Uh, the, the tendencies of these events are, and, and characteristics are very connected to climate change. So to be ignoring the impacts of climate change and denying the fact that it's human caused, as they've been doing, uh, goes against the mission of the agency. And it's, it's the very antithesis of public service, in my view. Mm -hmm. What would the best outcome be? The best outcome would be to, for, obviously, if the Office of Special Counsel rules in my favor, I want them to then hold the agency accountable, right? And it's not because I need anything out of it. I don't get a payout. I don't get money from this. It's just they need to be held accountable for this behavior so that they can't do it again. So whatever the OSC needs to do to make that take place, I'm fine with it, as long as there's an understanding that they did the wrong thing and they can't do it again. They need to be held accountable in this case. If, if the OSC uh, rules in my favor and says, DOI, you need to do these things, and they don't do them, then I sue to make them do it. So if they, in, if in they say, DOI, you need to do these <clears throat> things, could they say, you need to reinstate that program? Yeah, you know, and, and they, maybe that's a question for my attorney because I don't know the details of what they can be asked to do, but I, I absolutely think that would be a great outcome for DOI to be asked by the OSC to at very least ensure that the programs continue and that scientists are in place to help uh, these Americans in peril, in this case the Alaska Natives, but possibly others as well. Ideally, uh, holding them accountable on climate change would be even better, right? They can't be asked to put me back in my job because I've resigned, but they can be asked to make sure the work happens. Yeah, I think that would be a very good outcome. And what about the future for you? Well, you know, I, in, in many ways, uh, this has woken me up to uh, a pervasive problem. I think that the Union of Concerned Scientists has been on top of this for a long time. And uh, the fact that uh, science-based, evidence-based policy 
is how we operate in this country. And compromising that is a much bigger problem than I think most Americans are aware. So I do want to continue focusing on that. I am getting back in the Arctic game uh, soon. I'm a, a senior fellow now with the Harvard Belfer Center working on an Arctic initiative uh, and working on climate change adaptation issues. So I'm continuing the work that I was doing uh, from outside uh, the government now, but, I, but uh, maintaining the affiliation and the efforts with the Union of Concerned Scientists is important because I think that organization plus the Government Accountability Project and others that are focused on uh, whistleblower rights uh, they need all the, the attention and help they can get. Yeah. Well, thanks, Joel, for being a tireless advocate for science. You're making a difference, and we're very grateful. Well, thanks, Colleen, for having me on here, but also for, for those sentiments. I never know quite what to say to people when they say thank you, because in my mind, it was a no-brainer, right? You have to use your voice. I hope other civil servants do the same. So thank you. Now it's time for another example of the Trump administration sidelining science. Shreya Dervasula has the story. Just in time for May, aka Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, President Trump's administration is celebrating old school style by considering strict measures to keep Chinese citizens from working at American research institutes and universities. Party foul Trump administration. Since it is AAPI Heritage Month, let's look into some Asian history. Specifically, the year 1882, when thousands of Chinese immigrants were living and working in the U.S. Amid a wave of anti-Asian xenophobia disguised as economic anxiety, President Chester A. Arthur restricted immigration specifically from China that year when he signed the Chinese Exclusion Act. This act not only kept people from China from entering the U.S., but it also prevented anyone with Chinese origins from visiting China and returning without special certification, and prevented state and federal courts from granting citizenship to American Chinese residents. Congress liked this act so much that it was extended in various forms until 1943. Party foul, Chester A. Arthur and Congress from 1882 to 1943. But let's get back to 2018. As retaliation for a trade war started entirely by President Trump, the administration is contemplating limiting the kinds of visas available to Chinese researchers who work on military and or intelligence-related projects at American companies and universities. The administration claims that Chinese scientists who study at American universities will return to China and spill all kinds of secrets. These restrictions would probably most affect graduate students, postdocs, and tech employees who are in the U.S. on temporary visas. The thing is, there are already restrictions on who can work on sensitive technology. Security clearances, export controls, special licenses. Chinese students are not spies. In fact, of the million-plus foreign students from all over the world studying in the U.S. every year, I'd bet my green card that one million plus of them are just like me, here to study. Espionage concerns are not new, but there are better ways to protect American intellectual property, and a blanket policy restricting one nationality just doesn't make sense. My colleague Gregory Kulaki, who was interviewed on our last episode, is a special projects manager who lives and works in China. I'm giving him the last word on this. Quote, this is not a new problem. 
U.S. concerns about Chinese espionage emerge during periods when the image of China as a threat are circulated by U.S. political and economic elites. U.S. government targeting of individual scientists because of poor U.S. relationships with their government is a form of collective punishment that violates their basic human rights, both under international law and U.S. law. It can and should be challenged in the courts. In the meantime, U.S. scientists need to do more to speak up in defense of their colleagues from China. Most of the Chinese scientists and engineers living, working, or studying in the United States are simply living their individual lives, pursuing their careers, and trying to make a contribution to the various fields in which they work. They should not be made pawns or scapegoats in the political, economic, and military conflicts between these two governments. Instead, we should be focused on using the many bridges these Chinese scientists are building between our two nations to improve the relationship. End quote. Happy AAPI Heritage Month, y'all! The Trump administration may claim to want to protect trade secrets, but they are most definitely scheming to sideline science. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. Many, many thanks to scientist Joel Clement. Our sidelining science correspondent is Shreya Dervasila. Editing by Omari Spears. Music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. If you like what you hear, share us with your friends. And if you want to contact us, email podcast at ucsusa.org. Thanks, and see you next time.